Eating healthy, living healthy, being healthy. This is the Holistic Keto Goddess Podcast. A podcast focused on holistic wellness and teaching you about incorporating the keto diet and lifestyle changes to achieve an energetic balance. Teaching you how to live now so you don't struggle to live later. And now, your host, Jessica Ankaya. author of four books. The names of those books are Fight Cancer with a Ketogenic Diet, Ketogenic Diet for Type 1 Diabetes, Conquer Type 2 Diabetes with a Ketogenic Diet, and Inferior Nutrition. You can find those books on Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or probably several different platforms on the internet. Anyways, let's get to our interview, and here she is. Hi, Ellen. How are you doing? Hi, Jessica. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's so great to have someone that's a keto expert that I can talk to and interview and find out how we can treat cancer, ketogenic diet. So that's great. Let's get to the first question. So what is the primary method that the ketogenic diet can be used to help prevent and treat cancer, would you say? Well, I can give you kind of the biochemical uh, understate of that. And basically, I, I don't want to get too complicated because I don't want people's eyes glazing over, but <laughs> it's um, so most normal cells in your body can take incoming food particles, you know, your food gets digested and they can make energy. And there are two different paths for that. The first path, which happens in the cytoplasm of every cell, which is kind of like this thing that surrounds or, or is the inside of the whole cell, that first path is called glycolysis. And it, it doesn't need oxygen, but it burns a lot of sugar. And it only produces a small amount of energy, but it's important because it also produces substrates or molecules for the second process, which is where most of the cell's energy is made. So this second process, the more robust uh, energy path, it's called cellular respiration. And it's dependent upon oxygen. So that's why it's so important that we breathe and it's why you will die if you can't breathe. And it happens within these little structures called mitochondria. And you might remember from high school that the mitochondria are the cells powerhouses. Oh yeah. So the mitochondria basically can burn products of sugar, but it can also burn products from fatty acid burning and from fat byproducts called ketones. So ketones are made when your body switches over from burning sugar as a main fuel to burning fat as a main fuel. This is important because most types of cancer have broken mitochondria. So they can't burn fat, fatty acids, or ketones for fuel. They depend exclusively on sugar. And I would say, I call them basically, most cancer cells are sugar addicts. They can only use sugar as a fuel. So when you adopt a ketogenic diet, you're going to cut way back on the amount of sugar that you eat. So sugar comes from carbohydrates in the diet, and that's sugars and starches, you know, and um, pasta, bread, uh, Mm -hmm. starchy vegetables like sweet potatoes and potatoes and things like that. When you cut those out of your diet, it forces your body to use fat as fuel. Now that's great for weight loss, but it's also great for your metabolism because And especially if you have cancer, because you're basically starving the cancer cell of the sugar that it needs. 
and while at the same time, all of your normal cells are able to burn those fatty acids or ketones for fuel. And that's especially important for the brain. So the brain can use ketones for fuel instead of sugar. And it, it actually does quite well. And I would say that it's probably our normal state of being to be it what's called ketosis. I think which so. Means you're, yeah, you're burning fat and ketones for fuel instead. Right. I think ketosis is a very natural process. And yeah. I mean, you look at our ancestors, they probably went, especially in the winter, went for months and months without any access to any starches. And all they ate was probably meat, like right. especially in you know the colder climates where, you know, where yeah. there's snow and all that. So they made it through and they were a lot healthier and cancer was a lot less abundant back then. And I don't even know that it really even existed back in Paleolithic times. I don't think it did. Yeah, it, it probably didn't tell you that the Egyptians had rampant cancer, but they also ate a bread-based diet. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we switched over, if you, if you look at Lauren Cordain's stuff, when we switched over to an agrarian you know, farming type lifestyle, and, and it was kind of necessary because we were running out of animals to eat. Sure. Because there were so many of us, but Cordain will tell you that the body skeletons that they've unearthed for agrarian people, when you compare them to people who lived as a hunter-gatherer and ate mostly meat, the agrarian bodies are full of all kinds of disease, um, osteoporosis, there's evidence of cancer, tuberculosis. I mean, it probably saved our species to go to farming because there were so many of us, we were running out of uh, animals to eat, but at the same time, it reduced our stature and it made us more prone to disease. Oh yeah, I can definitely see that. Okay, great. So in your book, it seems you had mentioned on limiting your total carbs mm -hmm. when you are doing a ketogenic diet for cancer. Do you think that people could still get good, adequate treatment for their cancer and focus on prevention if they limit their focus on net carbs, say around 20 to 30 net carbs, as opposed to limiting their total carbs? I mean, do, do we have to be so low on our total carbs? I, I think if you're treating cancer, the lower you can go, the better. And my <laughs> friend, Miriam Clamium, she treats people, at, 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 well, I shouldn't say treat, but she works with people and has done so for hundreds of people. So she's kind of my, my guru for using the diet in an actual prescriptive fashion. And she starts her clients at 10 carbs per day. And I believe that's total carbs. The two things that drive cancer are sugar and insulin. So the, the lower you can get your blood sugar and the lower you can get your insulin levels, uh, which are tied to your blood sugar levels, the better off you're going to be. And, but this is all individual as well. So if you've got two individuals and one of them is insulin resistant, meaning that their insulin and blood sugar has been high for so long that their body has started resisting the message of insulin, which is to put blood sugar into cells. Becoming insulin resistant is kind of like most people become insulin resistant as they age because our, our standard American diet is so high in carbohydrate. So body's just trying to protect itself. But if you are already pretty insulin resistant, you're going to have a different response to a ketogenic diet than you would if you aren't insulin resistant. So if you are insulin resistant, you're probably going to need to stay under that 10 or 15 carbs sure. a day just to be able to make enough ketones to make a difference. If you're not insulin resistant, you know, you might be able to go to 10, 20 or 30 carbs a day and still stay in ketosis. So probably what 
you would want to do is read my book and Miriam's book and figure out, customize the diet for yourself and then keep track of your blood sugar and your ketone levels with meters to see how your body responds to what you're eating. So that's what I would recommend people do for that. Then, then it's very customized to your particular body. That's right. And that's what I recommend for people to do too, is I tell them, you know, if everyone is wondering, well, how many carbs or net carbs should I stay under? And I just say, well, everybody's different. But before I thought, well, at least to stay under 50 net carbs, but it's like anymore, I feel like it's better to look at your total carbs. Yeah. Stay under like 20 or 30 total carbs to get into a good ketosis. But even like you said, people that are insulin resistant may have to go a lot of a lot lower, like yeah, under fifty. And I, and I think, uh, sorry to interrupt you. The the okay. uh, alcohols, you know, net carbs. You take out sugar, alcohols, and fiber, and all of that stuff. It's particularly not dangerous, but I think it's particularly could be a back step for people who are insulin resistant to use sugar alcohols or allulose or any of these new sugars because you, you start taking those out of your carb total, and in particular, sucralose, Splenda. People use that a lot for yeah. sweetening, you know, on a ketogenic diet and that has an insulin response. So it's uh -huh. been studies that sucralose in particular will get you an insulin response. I think it's better to go with total carbs because it, you kind of limit then automatically the amount of artificial sugars or whatever fiber that you're eating, which can contribute to the total carb and then contribute to maybe jacking up your insulin, even if it doesn't affect your blood sugar, because insulin is a big driver of cancer cell growth. Sure. So there's downstream effects from having a high insulin level, even if your blood sugar is not high. Sure. And it, it's like, if, if you're getting, if you're wanting treatment for, for cancer or say you've hit a, a stall in your weight loss on keto, you're going to have to avoid those keto treats <laughs> like the keto cookies or brownies. Yeah, it's, it's a plain diet, you know, it's a ketogenic diet. I mean, if you're, if you're not a vegetarian, you know, it's going to be mostly meat and some salad yeah. vegetables. So, I um, mean, even the meat needs to be limited. And again, when you go to follow my book or Miriam's book, it will tell you exactly how many grams of protein to eat and, you know, for your particular body size. So it's not so much that you're limiting protein to unhealthy levels. You're just limiting it to keep your insulin down because protein will get you an insulin response as well. So the whole idea is to keep that insulin down. So we limit protein to just enough to support the body's muscle building, but not to jack up insulin too high. Right. And the protein though, it doesn't give you as much of an insulin spike, say as sugar, or even the artificial. Right. Sugar. Yeah. And, I mean, and it's, it's a long-term yeah. rise. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't spike like carbohydrates spike insulin and blood sugar immediately. Mm -hmm. So protein will usually take four to six hours to give you a blood sugar rise. And then mm -hmm. you get a little bit of an insulin, of insulin rise as well. So like for type one diabetics, this shows up when they switch to a ketogenic diet. So most type one diabetic bowl is for their whole food intake at the beginning of the meal. Mm -hmm. And when you're on a higher carb diet and you eat protein and carbohydrate at that meal, the bolus is enough to take care of both. But if someone goes, a type one diabetic goes onto a ketogenic diet, then they start to see that the bolus at the beginning of the meal is much lower. And then they realize that four hours later, they have to bolus again for that insulin and blood sugar rise from the protein. Mm. So it uncovers that mm. hidden fact about protein. Protein, when yeah. Does yeah. Like it a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of type one diabetics, what is your thought about type one diabetics doing a ketogenic diet? 
I well, I, whole, I wrote a whole book on it. So I, I know, and I, I didn't know that till till today. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very that the whole thing about diabetes is that when you eat carbohydrates, you get on what's called a blood sugar roller coaster. So you eat whatever the ADA tells you to eat at each meal, forty or fifty or sixty carbs a meal. Your blood sugar spikes. You have to for type one. You have to bolus enough insulin to take care of that spike, and that is not a linear relationship. So the higher your carbohydrate is, it's not going to be a one for one. You might need four times as much insulin than mm -hmm. if you only ate 10 or 12 carbs for that meal. So it's a dangerous thing for a type one diabetic because mm -hmm. when you give that big of a bolus of insulin, there's always a danger of hypoglycemia where your blood sugar drops too low and then you're in trouble. So I think for type one diabetics, a ketogenic diet is very helpful in that it smoothed out those spikes of blood right. sugar needing lots of insulin. Like my co-author on that book, Dr. Keith Runyon, he's a type one diabetic and he discovered to his anger that he wasn't taught this in medical school, that when he went, put himself on a ketogenic diet, his hypoglycemic episodes dropped from three or four a week to like one a year. Oh, wow. So, you know, he's very, he's an engineering kind of guy. So he keeps very close track of what he eats and how he eats. And he says, even in doing that, you can't predict what your blood sugar and insulin are going to do or how much insulin you're going to need. He's in much less danger of a hypoglycemic episode than somebody who eats a high carb diet, a, a type one that eats a high carb diet. Right. And I think a lot of type one diabetics probably have the fear of going into like a ketoacidosis, but yeah, they need a different, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. They need yeah, that. There is that fear. Mm -hmm. And part of that, we talk about that in the book, but part of that is that yeah. some type one diabetics develop a condition where their signaling is not working correctly uh -huh. uh, for, for insulin and blood sugar. But in general, the ketoacidosis has two markers. It has the marker of very, very high blood sugar, 400, 500, and high ketones. So right. for normal ketosis, we're talking one to seven on the scale, uh, you know, where ketoacidosis is 20. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, I have the charts are in my book about that, but it's a difference between a cup of water and two gallons. That's right. Know? So yeah. once you implement the diet for yourself, you're just very careful about how much insulin you give yourself. I wouldn't have a type one diabetic do it on their own. Sure. Unless they were very sure that they could manage all of that themselves. You know, they might want to be under a physician's care. Yes. Uh, 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 when they make the transition, eventually they'll get used to how to do it. But I think it's well worth trying at least for a type 1 diabetic. I mean, some type 1 diabetics don't like it. They like their carbohydrates. But for the most part, I think it can save your life. I think it almost eliminates hypoglycemia. There's a really good group on Facebook called Type 1 Grit. has thousands of members who follow mm -hmm. Richard Bernstein's Type 1 Diabetic Diet, which is, he doesn't mention ketosis in it or ketones, um, but his diet is clearly ketogenic because it's like six carbs for breakfast and 12 for lunch and 12 for dinner. So wow, but, uh, that diet has helped a lot of people. His book has helped a lot of people. He's really kind of the pioneer on this type one stuff. So uh, that's another good book to buy uh, his diabetes solution. But anyway, this group on Facebook is called type one grit. And I would highly recommend if you have type one diabetes and you want yeah. to check into it to join that group. Yeah, that's great. I have a patient who's a type one diabetic and he does very well. He's, he's on a ketogenic diet and he finds that 
he doesn't have to take as much insulin in and yeah it, and it, it could save you a lot of money on yeah it's saving sure. him yeah. it's really saving him so yeah it, it is doable it you just got to learn how to do it <laughs> yeah and all the people in the in this type one grit group on facebook there's a lot of parents with children with type one so yeah uh, uh, yeah. The guy that runs it, his name is R.D. Dykeman. His son is type 1 diabetic, and I think he's 10 now. They started him on it when he was like 7 or 8, and they have charts of his blood sugar. It used to look like a roller coaster, and now it's like completely almost smooth, you know, across. So yeah, um, it does make a huge difference in, uh, I'm sure, the fear that parents have, you know, that their child's going to have a hypoglycemic episode in the middle oh, of the night. Yeah. I, I highly recommend, if you have type 1 diabetes, to just check it out, you know, at least and try it. Yeah, that's a great, yeah, that's a great idea. So back to ketogenic for cancer. If someone is doing this, a strict ketogenic diet protocol, like 20 total carbs or 15 total carbs or less, when would you advise that they can start incorporating higher carbs when their cancer is more controlled or, or is it just different for everybody? Right. I think it's still individual, but you know, Miriam, you know, will add a, a few carbs here and there uh, as time goes on. But to me, the whole point again is to get that blood sugar and insulin down as low as possible mm-hmm. and uh, adding uh, a higher carb, like say a cheat day or something like that. I just, I think it's counterproductive, especially when you have cancer. So because that right. cheat day is going to throw you out of ketosis and it's going to take right. you two or three days to get back in. And so that's four days you've lost you know, where you're encouraging the cancer to reestablish itself. So it is, again, an individual thing. It, if it saves your sanity, like there was a lady that used to write to me when I, my book first came out, she liked wine. And so she would have a glass of wine with dinner and she called that her, her psychological therapy because there's, there's a psychological hit and a spiritual hit, mm-hmm. you know, when dealing with cancer, because you're facing your death, right? You're, you're sure, looking at the lens of mortality and, so if you need a glass of wine at night, then maybe you need a glass of wine at night. Maybe you need a cheat day per the week, you know, take some of the pressure off. But if you don't absolutely have to have it, I wouldn't say do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you got to think of the ketogenic diet as a prescription by your doctor and not, you have to follow the prescription. You can't yeah. go astray. Yeah. And sometimes you, you forget to take your pills, right? So same thing. You <laughs> same <forget>. thing. <laughs> yeah. So you got to be as compliant as possible. How about for prevention of cancer? Like, do you think that someone that's trying to prevent cancer, do you think that they have to stay under the same carb allowance, like 20 total carbs? Or do you think that they could go a little bit higher? I I don't know that you can prevent cancer with a ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. There are stories, you know, people getting cancer who are on ketogenic diets. So Mm-hmm. I don't think you can prevent it, but Dr. Seafried, who wrote, you know, the metabolic pro- protocol for what we're talking about here for ketogenic diet for cancer at a Boston university, he has mentioned several times in his podcast or on, you know, I've seen him at conferences speaking that doing a one week fast every year, or every yes. half year would cause a clear out, you know, of maybe cancerous stem cells or something like that. So I mean, you could use fasting as a way to ramp up ketosis for a week and, and see if that helps kill off stem cells. But I don't think there's any studies on this. So, and I think it depends again on other factors. It's not just a physical thing for cancer. I think that there are some metaphysical, like, yeah, metaphysical you know, chakras. What, what's, your, and- what's your psychology like? You know, are you in despair? Are you sad? Is your heart broken? I think all of those 
there's a lot of different aspects to disease and cancer is no different than any and than any other disease so right i wouldn't say that a ketogenic diet would prevent cancer and um it's a little dangerous you know to think that because then think well i'm eating ketogenically i don't need to worry about anything else so you let your mood be sour every day or you hate people or whatever it is hatred in your heart whatever it is i'm i'm going out on a limb here but I think that it's important to look at the whole person. Right. But of course, comparing to our American standard diet, better than that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Anything you get away from the American, the standard American diet is the sad diet, as they say, (laughs) is good. I mean, if, if you just, I think you'd go a long way to improving your health just to cut sugar and starch out of your diet. Yeah. So stop the cost of bread and sugar and you, you would feel so much better from just doing that. Yeah, especially gluten, wheat, wheat products that that might be enough just to fix whatever health problems you have. I think probably 90% of health issues in the United States are based on diet. Yeah, for sure. So when it comes to doing the ketogenic diet, do you think a good detox protocol comes in handy when doing it? Like, especially if you have cancer, like using a sauna or coffee enemas or refreshing. I don't know much about detoxing. I haven't studied a lot about it. I know that there is some discussion of light therapy, radio electromagnetic therapy, like laying mm-hmm. on mats, grounding mats and things like that. I think there's a guy named, uh, he's a dentist and I forget his name, but he had, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma and he's extended his life. Dan- Dannenberg, that's his last name, Dannenberg. He's extended his life two years out from his diagnosis. He was supposed to die, you know, within six months. And he does that electromagnetic grounding map. And he says it really makes a huge difference for him. So yes, um, I've heard of that. that, but I don't know that that's a detox thing. Uh, I know uh, sauna treatments have been mentioned as well. There's hyperbaric oxygen treatments that are supposed to be very helpful. So I just don't know enough about detoxing to answer that question for you. That's okay. Now, what about... You talked a little bit about keto, vegan, or vegetarian earlier. What are your thoughts on keto, vegan, or keto, vegetarian, if you are undergoing keto for cancer treatment? So keto, vegetarian, I think you could probably pull it off to some extent, because when you're on a vegetarian, vegan diet, you're eating Mm -hmm. a lot of carbohydrate. Now, it's good carbohydrates, you know what they say in quotes, good carbohydrates, vegetables Mm -hmm. and fruit and stuff like that, but that's still carbohydrate. Your body doesn't know the difference. Yeah. So if you eat, you know, a handful of strawberries versus half a Snickers bar or a quarter of a Snickers bar, it's the same thing to the body. Right. Uh, So vegetarian, they could rely more, hopefully they would be eating eggs or fish or something like that, some kind of uh, protein food. And again, I don't know much about vegetarian diets, but if you can combine other types of food to get a full complement of amino acids from your protein, uh, you know, meaning a complete protein profile, I think it's doable. It would take a lot of knowledge about combining foods and things like that, which vegetarians may have, but, or may know already, but for a vegan, I think it's be very difficult to do that. I think you just, there's just at a certain point that the level of carbohydrate just gets you too much of an insulin response, which shuts down ketosis. So you're just not, I don't think, I think it would be near impossible for a vegan to do a ketogenic diet. Yeah. And I tried keto vegan. I did it for about a month or two. And I found that I was getting very fatigued from not getting the B vitamins naturally from meat sources. And so Mm -hmm. I was coming anemic and I had to start supplementing. And I found that I could not go under, let's say 30 net carbs. I couldn't get my carbs low enough to get into a good ketosis. 
Yeah. So I, I know what you're saying firsthand from just experiencing it. And um, so I decided to incorporate meat back in just because I, I, I just couldn't do it. Now, I may have deficiency, the MTHFR deficiency. Maybe I'm just not, can't process the B vitamins. I don't know. I've never been tested, but I just thought, yeah. man, if I have to take supplements to feel good, then you I don't. Know, I, you yeah. know, to me, that that's, you know, I look at it from the point of view, like, you know, if we evolved eating, you know, eating certain types of foods, like Cordain talks about this paleolithic diet type thing. Mm -hmm. And I know people do vegan and vegetarian diets for other reasons, mm -hmm. um, you know, that have to do with their faith or more morals or whatever. But I just look at it from the point of view, if you're not able to get as important a vitamin as B12 is, I mean, you'll die without B12. If you're not able to get that from the food you're eating, that's probably not the diet that the human being evolved on. Exactly. Because otherwise we wouldn't have evolved. That's right. So that's the way I look at it, but right. it's not to say you shouldn't do a vegan diet if you want to do it or a vegetarian diet. That's up to you. It's your life. You can do whatever you want. Right. But right. Your physical body requires B vitamin 12, B12 vitamins and vitamin levels to function correctly. So keep mm -hmm. that in mind. Exactly. All right. Great. Well, let me ask you one more question. And because we kind of talked about a little bit earlier about metaphysical work for cancer. So mm -hmm. that involves healing your chakras or forgiving your past or trying to forgive yourself. If, if you want to just delve into that a little bit. and um, Yeah. Um, I think that cancer is not all a physical cause, I believe. I think that your, well, I think that everything is energy. And so if your energy mm -hmm. is marred by negative emotion, hatred, sadness, you know, despair, whatever it is, that's going to have an effect on your overall health. Yeah. So I think the, you know, controlling your thought processes so that you try to look at the blessings in your life or the goodness in your life more than you look at the negative things in your life, to me, can only have positive consequences. So, you know, the more you focus on the positive, the more likely that you're going to improve your health. But, you know, I have no studies to back that up. That's just my, I guess there are studies on, on prayer and things like yeah, that. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, that prayer and, and, uh, positive feelings and laughter and things like that do increase markers for positive health within the body. So, you know, it's not that far-fetched. Right. And I've read stuff about, you know, negative thoughts can increase acidosis in your body mm -hmm. in which we have, when we have an acidic body, we're more prone to disease. So the whole idea is we want to keep our body as alkaline as possible by eating lots of good nourishing foods, like good vegetables and healthy organic meats and thinking very positive. Then yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. So, yep. But all right, well, this has been great. And thank you so much. And I'm going to include the links for your books on our transcript. So if any of you would like to purchase her books, there's four of them, please go to the transcript and you can be directed to her books. I hope you have a great day, Ellen. And <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's been, uh, it's been nice to chat. Yeah, it's been great. I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. Thanks. Bye, -bye. Bye everyone. This has been the Holistic Keto Goddess Podcast with Jessica Ankaya. Follow the Holistic Keto Goddess on social media like Pinterest, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have any questions about today's show or how you can live a healthier life, visit HolisticKetoGoddess.com.
and go more in-depth with blogs and healthy living resources. Like, share, subscribe, and listen wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Holistic Keto Goddess Podcast with Jessica Ankaya.